So we're continuing this series called Thinking Rightly. And as I mentioned, the first part of this series is foundational for the entire series. So if you haven't yet, go to online and listen to, to the first message sermon of this series, Thinking Rightly About God. And you will see glimpses of uh, foundational things even today. Today our focus is uh, thinking rightly about sin. Uh, and no one talks about sin these days, including church, and there are actually pastors who would refuse to use the word sinners or sin in the name of being positive. Um, obviously, it's a very uncomfortable word. But I'm going to share this very carefully. If you do not understand the biblical view of sin, you do not understand grace of God. And let me go one step further. Very carefully and gently and lovingly, I'm going to say this. I've heard even in this church and in our community and across this city and nations, whenever I get to interact with Christians and speak some other churches or retreats, there's a common thing, the genuine concern for the people who say, I know God loves me in my head, but I don't really know experientially. I don't feel that God loves me. I'm praying in my back of my head right now that Holy Spirit will reveal the things that you need to see then once you understand sin, biblical view of sin, rightly, that you will be shocked, and I will be shocked by grace of God. And the feelings are important because of that. That we will feel God's love and forgiveness. And there's nothing like ongoing true reality of Christian life is experiencing that God's love right now, today. And not in a narcissistic way, but in a real way that my sin becomes so overwhelming and despair, and it's just a full of the things that I despise. Yet God still loves me, accepts me. So I think I, I wanted to give that away first. And let's think about other reasons why we must think rightly about sin. If we don't think rightly about sin, it will lead us to at least three things. Number one, denial. We mystify sin as something unreal and irrelevant. It is something like, in antiquity, they need to use the word sin and sinners. But we are civilized, sophisticated, educated, intellectual society. There is no sin. It's like a Greek myth. Mythical gods in Greek. So what, what sin? Is our, could be our response if we don't think rightly about sin. 
This is predominantly secular humanism's uh, influence in our man-centered world view is just that. The other side of it is, if we don't think rightly about sin, it will lead us to victimization. We fault environment, our bad DNA, our father who was angry and wrathful, uh, an alcoholic, or mother who was uncaring, un- unnurturing, and what an absence of the parents, or I've been born in this kind of family. And the DNA that I got was prone to do this. So we end up saying, it's not my fault. I realize there's sin, but it's not my fault. What can I do? And to a point that it could be even we could fault devil. Devil made me do it. See, all these things, we're not really far from it. It's not somebody else that we're pointing to. From time to time, under, underneath our breath, these are the thoughts that come to our mind if we don't think rightly about sin. Thirdly, if we don't think rightly about sin, it will lead us to trivialization. Thing be- sins in our lives become trivial. And many of church-going people, religious people, many devout Christians can fall into this trap. We approach sin with quick fix, and there is a cleaning up, a pseudo-transformation, I'll call it, and in ingratitude. The ingratitude is being honest about their feeling. I, I'm not really grateful. Why is that? It's uh, relatively so easy to clean up your act. And as if the people who are kind of running from uh, just ran half marathon and coming in, they got a couple couple of uh, cups of water and then people say you need water come and get water said oh no I'm fixed I'm good now and I I think one of the very delicate thing that I want to deal with is in our misconception not only on denial that we want to just blatantly rebel against God and go party and drink and sleep around. And that kind of a antinomianism, just kesara sarai, there's no law. Who cares? But many of us, especially those of us who are moms and dads, grew out of that stage and feeling like that we want to live life insanity in very clear mind and wise way and should we even put godly way so another angle that I really want to go at it is this trivialization of the sin let me just put it very blatantly to you 
if you're not really aware of your sin, how deep and wide the pervasive sin you have and I have in us. We're going to make sin, underestimate the power of sin. We're going to sniff at it in a way that we could handle. We think we could handle it. So I'm going to do a couple of things. Maybe we could compare the distorted view with the biblical view first. And then let's think about what the Bible says, what Scripture really says about the nature, essence of sin. And then we want to give hope, some true remedy, and maybe just the beginning of introduction of that. So first, there are two views of sin. And it's a very oversimplified way of uh, putting to it. It's not a comprehensive list. But uh, as I see it, there's a story view of sin in this, our Western world, is a sin has been replaced by, it's a mistake, it's a failure, slip, error, screw up, misstep, bad call, junk, stupidity. Sounds familiar? Any one of us who got into marital conflict, these are the words we use. Okay, I messed up. It was my error, junk, mistake, failure. I slipped. What can I do? I'm a human being. It's stupidity. I know I'm stupid. I made a mistake. We dare not to say I was wrong. I've sinned this against you. Would you please forgive me? That's the mental attitude. And biblical view is a, it's a actually relational offense primarily against God. Do you remember Psalm 51? David says after the adultery and the indirect murder of a Uriah the Hittite to cover the sin of adultery. When Nathan the prophet came and confronted him and that's the psalm that he prayed have mercy me O God. And then he, he said uh, I have sinned against you and you only. It's, he's not saying I don't care about those people I offended. He's saying my primary sin is offense to you. If we don't understand this, we don't understand biblical view. So because of that definition of sin, the destroyed view in terms of need is a need for improvement. I'll get better. I'll do next time better. But when it is an offense primarily against God and secondarily to others, the need from the biblical view of sin is repentance. Change of the direction. Change of heart in a way that you're making a U-turn. That you don't go your way anymore. That you're turning against, away from your, your way to God's way. 
And focus on the distorted view of sin is on the visible, behavioral modification, behavioral change, external changes. Focus on the, uh, the biblical view of sin is on the invisible, the heart changes. So remedy for cleaning up from the outside in is uh, fix the problem. I goofed off. It was my misstep. I'll fix the problem. I yelled at kids. I lost my temper. I'll fix the problem. I spent too much money. I shopped a little bit too much. I'll fix the problem. Okay, I forgot the anniversary. I forgot the gift. I'll fix the problem. Give me a chance next year. But biblical view is transform the heart. Do you realize that Apostle Paul is not posing when he said, I am the chief of the sinners? So we, we could even think about this parallel as we are growing into Christ. And our, our view of our own sin and sinfulness grows. Not because we sin more. We probably, obviously, if we really grow in Christ, we sin less. But our perspective of how deep and pervasive sin is, we become far more aware of our sinfulness, our depravity, our total pervasive depravity. So what does scripture really says? About four things I, I want to, once again, simple, make this as simple so we could focus on it and deal with our wrong thoughts. Number one, the sin is a universal pro- problem of everyone. Not somebody who are bad people, but everyone, including you and me. In other words, it, it is... All human beings are innately sinful. Okay, this, this is the point that we drastically different from the mainstream thoughts. The mainstream thoughts goes like this. You know, if you really give them right environment, right education, you know, they're good, good people in, the, in heart. People are innately actually good, but are bad people, bad parenting, lack of education, mess people up. So Alex Haley, I wrote The Brave New World, a very uh, memorable book in, back in my high school days, and reading from just the even reading into the, our culture now, no wonder we are in, some of us are in deep despair. With all the education and technology, the world has gotten worse, far worse. And we cannot fathom 
how a human being could rape three-year-old kid, six-year-old kid, kidnap them, how a human being can do gruesome things, and not only just the killing a person, murdering, but sp spreading the body parts all over. And we could quickly go to the victimizing mentality. That person is mentally sick. So therefore, I am not like that person. With biblical point of view, I have and you have. I'm going to offend you in this. Capability to do that. It's by God's grace we are prevented going further into the slavery of sin. Yes, there are environment factors in parenting, the DNAs, mental diseases. I'm not denying all that. But at the will of the human heart is depraved. Jeremiah 79 is not talking about uh, evil doors outside. It's a you and me, including when we are most devout in our Bible reading and praying and trying to live a Christian life in our own family, and we are doing our best, our condition of the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know what that means? When we are actually very sinful and wicked in our hearts, we don't even know our motive. We don't even know the depravity in our hearts. And later on, we, we caught, we catch on that, but others will confront that. But unless you have a pretty healthy sense of self, the denial will, will buffer most of everything. The reason why sin is a universal problem of everyone and we are innately sinful is because this, the doctrine of original sin Whenever we say original sin, some, some people misunderstand the fact that, well, Adam and Eve, that they had a first sin. Why should I get affected by what? It was me. It's not fair. So whenever you think about original sins, you should think about, think this way. Inherited sin. Sin came in because of Adam and Eve's first sin. It depraved the hearts of people. It changed the DNA that God created in our hearts. So when we are coming to Christ, we are following this spiritual formation. Is actually spiritual reformation of a heart that once God created. That's a redemption process. Number two, Sin is ultimately about dethroning God by self. And this, this is a very important point. Either by breaking God's law or keeping God's law. 
And you would say, that's absurd. How do you keep God's law and dethrone God? Pharisees did. Many religious people did. And oftentimes, beyond our, our own consciousness, I shouldn't say consciousness, beyond our self-awareness, we're doing this. We want to control God by keeping the God's moral law so that he could continually bless us. God needs to cooperate because I am obeying God. Let me give you this thought. Let's go back to Garden of Eden, the beginning of everything. Adam and Eve, they were given only one rule, wasn't there? So one rule was not a moral law. It's not, it's not like a do not kill, uh, it's not do not lie, anything like that. But do not eat the free fruit from this tree that will give you knowledge of good and evil. So when you think about that one rule that is disobeyed is basically what, is, what it is. God created human beings, and God is meant to be in our lives at the center. And then gives us most satisfaction that he becomes our everything. But because of this breaking one rule, they say, I don't want you to be sitting on the throne of my universe. I would like to choose. This is what Satan did, right? The seven eyes are there, and the devil actually basically tempted uh, came to Eve first, but the sin came in. Obviously, the, that's why the reason why we call Satan or devil the evil one. He is the source of the evil and sin. So what am I saying? When you think about the fact that they dethroned God in that way, and let's put ourselves in that shoes, in Pharisees, or you know, the, they all started in a good motive in the beginning, and even us. How do we control God? How do we dethrone God, even as an evangelical Christian? Here's a sign. When you are doing really well, consistent in church attendance and Bible reading, and you are really honestly trying hard to, to forgive and die to self, whatever that is necessary at home, but your kids are not doing well in school, your marriage is not improving, your business is not, not making enough money, financial problems. There's a sense of anger, frustration. Why? God is not doing his part. So we, in a sense that we feel like we're honoring by, God, by, by obeying God's law, but our ultimate sin is that by obeying God, sinfully, we want to control God. 
This is a really spectrum of our lives and going back and forth. We surrender. We, we become humble before God. But and yet, as we are getting better and better, there's a sense of control. That anger and frustration really comes from demandingness. We, we have a demanding spirit toward God. And that God is not useful anymore. But God, if God is a sovereign God, that itself, the demanding spirit itself is deep, deep sin. And I pray the Holy Spirit will open the eyes of our heart that we be able to see how offensive. Like just imagine that we're spitting at God's face. How offensive our attitude, our me-centered and self-absorption is, demanding spirit is, even when we are doing the best. That was the problem of Pharisees and Sadducees. Isn't that? Pharisees fasted twice a week and gave tithing for everything. And their life revolved around scripture, keeping the law. And their heart grew more arrogant each day. Remember Jesus said, I came for the sick, not for the well, not for the healthy. So this is the uh, Jesus re responds to the Pharisees' accusation, why do you hang out with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes? What's wrong with you? And Jesus' response is, was that. Because they need, the doctors are needed when people are sick. I came for the sick. Do not misunderstand for one bit. Jesus is not saying, Pharisees, you guys are healthy. Spiritually, so I, I don't, you guys don't need me. You guys could be on your own for your salvation, your righteousness. But these guys need my help. We sometimes listen to it that way, isn't it? And prodigal son, when, when the younger son took off and rebelled and just wasted all of his inheritance and coming back, limping, all dirty with the pig's food all over his body. That he was sinful by breaking the law, breaking the heart of his father. But there was another sinner who's at home, who's clean, who's been obedient, who's the elder son, who grew in anger. Father, this son of yours, when he came back, Wasting your money and with prostitute, you are giving him a party. Fattened calf was killed for him, and robe and ring was on him. But to me, you have not done even a little lamb. Look at what. Genesis 3 and 4 
uh, chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, says that to the serpent, the, the evil one, said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a lie. And then mixed with truth here, verse 5, but God, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Yes, you will. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is God's role in their lives. When they opened their eyes, they saw their nakedness, symbolizing they became self-aware and self-concerned. And then at the center and throne of their, their heart, instead of God, self became enthroned. There are many days, I'll be the first one to admit that in my efforts to pursue God and do a faithful ministry, I felt frustrated because the church would not take off in the way that I imagined. I feel frustrated. Because the person in front of me is not changing. The marriage is not getting better. In my own view of sin, it's like, I am doing the right thing. Is, am I not, God? But at the heart of it, I am controlling God. I am dethroning myself, meaning surrendering. This is yours. Not my, not my throne. Therefore, I will not worry. But if I take the throne away, throne again, what, what do I do? I become angry and, and, and even including our kids, isn't it? The pastor's kid, they need to behave. So behind the scene, my voice goes up. When I'm rationalizing, I, I am vindicating myself in the name of discipline. Number three, sin is primarily internal and not external. Please bear in mind, this is intentional for me to be redundant. I'm hitting the same point over and over. Because when we begin to sin from the external point of view, we become prideful. We're good. You know, last time I remember, I got a ticket, traffic ticket, it's a few years ago, so I'm clean, I'm, I'm good. If you pull up my record, public record, nothing will show up. And some of us, many of us could say those things. But sin is primarily internal. Look, let, listen to the analogies of the scripture. What analogies were, are used for describe sin? Leprosy. Leaven. Yeast. 
those things are internal, invisible. Leprosy starts with no one knows, but you only know. And the symptoms grew and grew. And then your closest one begin to notice something's wrong with you. And then when it's full-blown, the neighbors know that you have to live separately. And then when it's really, really full-blown, you don't feel the pain. So fire burns your, your hand, uh, gangrene happens, you cut off your uh, one of the fingers. Do not feel anything. Sin is that growing, but it's an internal first. Leaven also too. Be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeast, one of the very first steps that I did as a part-time high school kid, part-time job was a donut baker. So I know how to uh, work with the dough. But the first time I forgot because I was so sleepy it was after, you know, I have a colorful social life and two o'clock in the morning I'm just doing this and I forgot the yeast. And it will not rise. If you look at the first dough, you will not be able to distinguish. So you cover it after you, you knead it, right? Sin is internal. Sin is a deep internal beginning point. So when you see somebody's acting out, that acting out has long begun in the heart way early. Today's passage, um, Jesus is pointing this out in Matthew 7, verse 23, 20 to 23. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they de defile a person. We could fake it pretty well. But the reason why the children are so spiritually sensitive, when we are faking it, they know it. When we are not real, when we are not genuinely humble, when we don't genuinely welcome the guests who are coming in, and then when, as soon as they left, and the kids will know, like, why didn't you like them? Didn't I say, welcome, but in your face? If sin is primarily internal, not external, we're in deep trouble. The evangelical world is known for covering, the clean on the outside. Orange County is that. On the outside, even the house looks so clean. And I feel sorry for the urban residents because you can't even put up any different color or the uh, basketball court or whatever that is because of the appearance of, on the outside. And this brings the last point. 
Sin is pervasively powerful in spreading and enslaving. In other words, sin doesn't just sit there. That we, we say, oh, this, no one will know. I'll just have this uh, lustful thought. Who doesn't? I just check internet porn once in a while. No one will know. It will stay there. I'm going to confine that. We are understand, underestimating power of sin. Okay, that's for typically guys, right? When you have a bitterness and hatefulness toward person, toward the person who hurt you and unresolved conflict, or someone who offended you, and you glossed over and thinking that I'm a better person, and so I just as long as I don't rub shoulders with that person. You let that sin in your heart. It will be pervasively powerful in spreading every, every direction, like leprosy, like leaven. It will take over. One, one last example would be the pride. Man and woman both have subtle pride is there. So isn't it kind of interesting in our culture? Pride is well received as a sin. So suppose I say, oh, I saw internet porn for 15 minutes last night. (gasps) Can't believe you did that. What if I say, I had pride last night with my wife. And no one will. <gasps> That's what we do. The deep sins that are primarily offensive to God, we're rationalizing. I, I really wish you could hear me out. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about you or us in general. But I'm trying to say the pathway to God's love and experiencing God's forgiveness and grace is staring at the reality of our depravity and sin. Like this. John Owen, a Puritan writer, um, writes very insightful. It's a big punch coming he writes, sin does not only still abide in us, but is still acting, still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin, as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be the most quiet, and its waters are for the most Heart deep when they're, st- when they're still. So ought our contrivance so against our contrivance, contrivances against it. Sorry about that. Be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is a least suspicion. 
And then he challenges, do you mortify? This is the old language. Mortify means to us is more extremely embarrassed, right? But it's a death, deadening thing, killing. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Seize not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So when you look at your life, do you look at above the water level? There's not much of sin. The last time you did anything a little ashamed to share with anyone is long, maybe a couple of weeks ago. This week you're good. If we live on the visible level, we become more like Pharisee every day. See, Pharisees are two characteristics, right? They're hypocritical. There's a duplicity going on. And they're prideful, judgmental, looking down on others. This is why some of our non-Christian friends do not like to hang around with us. I'm not saying we become like them. Go just do whatever they do. But in our heart, we need to deal with our sins so that there's a sense of Christ. Gentleness, peace will be shown to them. I see Christ in you. But I, I think maybe I, I should have drawn this um, picture when you think about iceberg, you know, this is incredibly larger, isn't it? On the su- surface, only top. So if I give you a, just a brief, quick overview of what Bible calls a remedy for our sin, is the first step from rationalization, wh- when you look at the visual level, we could rationalize almost everything. The first thing is facing what's broken inside of us. In other words, when we don't really realize that something that we did is sinful, very evil, wicked, even to our eyes, we will not repent. We will say things like, uh, sorry if you forget, feel hurt. Not my, not my problem. Why, why aren't you so sensitive? I just said it. I didn't mean anything. But sorry if I. <laughs> the brokenness is now I see it. Oh, I hurt you so deeply. How can I do that? How, this is so cruel. Lord, forgive me from that. Unless we face. The brokenness, there is no true forgiveness, I mean true repentance. Unless there is no repentance, there is no true God. I cannot clean up myself. I abandon myself to you. Have mercy on me. And that God saves us from freedom and cleanses us from unrighteousness and purifies our hearts. 
This is too theoretical, isn't it? So I'm going to share the same, um, probably same analogy that could help us and my, my, on my own life. Um, this doesn't happen too often at Crossway, but when I was working with previous church, it was a large church, and I, most of staff reported to me, and I had so busy schedule night and day. But Kate usually, she didn't work. Um, she would call me about 4 or 5 o'clock, when are you going to be home? So she wants to cook a meal and eat dinner together. So in my honest, I really felt honest and the real about it. Oh, I'll be home at the latest 6.30. But usually, on my knocking on my door, the, um, my assistant probably left already, or the, the appointment book, they disregarded. It's just a popping up their head, and you got a minute. It's either staff or the people who are in desperate need and coming in. Yeah, sure, come in. So I have about 15 minutes. This is very unrealistic on my part. I'm going to hear, hear them and just care for them for 15 minutes. But that 15 minutes is never 15 minutes. So I usually went over. By the time when I come home, I'll be usually about 45 minutes or an hour late. But Kate's a very tolerant person. So she doesn't say anything bad and you know. But in my mind it's only about five, six times happened. But one time I walked in and I was about I was driving really fast at fifty five north and it's kinda crazy the rush hour. So I weave through that busy traffic light. I mean traffic. And I made it, and it's only 12 minutes, 13 minutes late. I think Kate had an appointment with her friend that night. She was late, and I walked in. She was mad. So unlike me, I'm a yeller. When she gets mad, she gives me cold shoulder. shoulder. Like, uh-oh. But in my mind, there was an anger. Come on, that lousy 15 12, 12 to 15 minutes. Come on, give me a break. And the more I insist my uh, reasonableness, the more she will shut down more. And then in my mind, I recollect only five, six times late. In reality, I think it was about 35, six, 36 times. I apologize. I'm a good pastor, by the way, right? <laughs> sorry. I'm really sorry. I was late. Oh, no, no, Mr. Pryor. Yeah, but you should, you should know that you, you marry a pastor. You know, I'm trying to be a good pastor here. Come on, give me a break. I didn't say all that, right? <laughs> so I hung out with God. Just being silent. That's an extended period of time. God... What do you desire to see in me? And God shows me how sinful my heart and motive was. I did not know it. Jeremiah 79 happened. I didn't understand it. The reason why 
Holy Spirit revealed to me, not audibly, very impressionally, very clearly, you, you cared about how you are viewed by those people. In other words, you cared about yourself so much compared to your wife's need. In other words, you did it for yourself. And and on that, and I'm lifting rocks in everywhere. Look at my motives. And I was just disgusted about my myself. I thought I did for, for God. I, I thought my motives were pure. But here I was, evidently, I was selfish jerk. Self-glorifying jerk. And you should have seen my journal. I wept over that. Because, not because I was godly, but because God showed me my own brokenness. Psalm 139, David is praying, Search me, O God, and to see if there's anything wicked in me. Things that I don't even know. Things that I don't know that it displeases you. So in closing, I want to just briefly mention three things. How can we begin to think rightly about sin? Number one is deal with sin as a relational offense against God and his character. Rather than thinking, my failure, I'm going to do better. But it is just imagine that God is in front of you and that you are being very rude and spitting at him. And any sin to our brothers and sisters and people around us ultimately sin against God. Number two, stop rationalizing your sins. Do not explain your sins away. Do not excuse yourself and blame shift. Face your sins beyond a visible external level. Can I clarify one thing? By facing your own brokenness doesn't mean self-condemnation. As much as you are dethroning God by controlling what outcome is, refusing to accept the acceptance of God and God's forgiveness is, my opinion, God, is better than yours. In my opinion, I'm not forgiven. I'll do better. Wait for me. I'll improve a little bit, and then you could forgive me. Until then, I just beat my head. This is unbelief, distrust. Remember that God is relationship with God is that we become childlike, leaning against, leaning on, hard on God, that God becomes everything to us. Lastly, keep experiencing God's love and forgiveness by confessing your sins and surrendering yourself to God. This is an obvious point, but let me encourage you as we close. If your spiritual life has been dry, that you don't feel things with God and for God and from God at all, can I encourage you to not protect yourself from God? Create space, just like I did. Go to your favorite coffee shop or, or 
park, or you're a beach person, you go. And that's God. What do you desire to see in me? Search my heart, O oh God. Help me face my brokenness. And wait until God shows you that. It may take two hours. Certainly for me, it usually take about three or four. Because everything is just noises in my heart and defensiveness kind of come down. You're scared of that, some of you, and you don't want to be even being in sin, in the silence, un make you uncomfortable. Just uh, 30 seconds of silence becomes very uncomfortable to you. Let me repeat myself. You don't have to protect yourself from God because God loves you. And you don't have a problem His Son dying on the cross for your sins because He loved you. And this will happen. This is my promise. One from one beggar to another beggar where I got bread. When my sin is exposed initially, there's a really shame and sadness is there. When I face my brokenness. Then suddenly, I remember my relationship with Christ Christ's blood coming upon that on that sin and then he freezes me he forgives me there is nothing like it and I feel loved by God more than any time I feel deeply cared by God my trust for him grows because of his forgiveness Oh, I wish every one of you experienced that this coming week. Let's close with prayer. I know I labor the points and many of you just it's, it has become clear to you too. But before we break it into groups to share application in our minds, in our head, maybe this is time for you to open your heart and be, give God your empty hands. And maybe some of you don't even know how to, what to say right now. All you can say is, if you belong to Christ, if you have made a decision to follow Christ, that if you are Christ's follower, you belong to him. And you just simply said, have mercy on, on me, O oh God. Would you show me my next step? Would you show me where I need to repent? Would you give me your grace and mercy that I may experience your love? Some of you never had experience of really receiving Christ as God's forgiveness and free gift for you. You need to do that. 
we urge you to do that. Can I remind you, if we think rightly about God, God is not only sovereign, but he is always consistently good. He cares for you. He loves you. So let's be silent before God. In your heart, say what you need to say to God. Or just be silent before God. Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you, for the, thank you for the fact that your scripture is clear and to the point. And as we think about sin rightly, and our prayer is that, that you will be merciful to us and show us to find the river of grace and mercy the coming week. For our church, Lord, my prayer is that that we will continually become aware of our own brokenness, our need for your utter mercy. Give us the vision of the life of God coming into our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for each one of the people who are sitting in this room, the Holy Spirit, that you will continually pursue them in your gentle nudges, whisper to their ears and their heart to surrender and to rest, to find peace and joy in your forgiveness. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.